There were a number of race riots throughout the country. My memory tells me that there were at least 25 of them across the United States. And James Weldon Johnson, who was head of the NAACP, termed it the Red Summer, because in many cases, some of the streets literally ran with red with blood. In addition to the racial and labor tensions that are going on nationwide, there was a great deal of political tension. The mayor, John E. McMillan, is up, was up for re-election. One of the reasons that the mayor was controversial at that time was his progressive attitude towards race relations. He had been elected largely with black votes. He had made an address to the black business leaders denouncing the riots elsewhere, denouncing, he had denounced lynching, and it said that he personally intended to make sure that nothing like that could ever happen in Knoxville. There had been threats against black voters, warning that uh, black voters should stay home on election day. Threatening posters had been posted around town. The mayor had a lot of black campaign workers, one of them being Maurice Mays. You just heard a clip of Knoxville's Red Summer, a documentary about the Knoxville, Tennessee race riot of 1919. It was produced by Black in Appalachia. The organization works to highlight the history of African-Americans in the Appalachian Mountains, as well as the visibility and contributions of Black communities in the Mountain South. Knoxville's Red Summer is narrated by researcher and author Robert J. Booker and journalist Matt Lakin. partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. This is part two of our two-part episode four, The Red Summer of 1919. Knoxville, Tennessee was one of about 25 communities that experienced race riots, massacres, and incidents of mob violence targeting African Americans between the spring and fall of 1919, a time period also known as the Red Summer. It started on August 30th, 1919, with the arrest of Maurice Mays, a black man, for the murder of an innocent white woman. Mays, a night spot operator, had been a Knox County deputy sheriff and was well known around town. It was also known that he had an affinity for white women and had been warned by city policeman Tony White to stop socializing with white women or be sent to prison. And so it was White who arrested Mays for the murder of Mrs. Bertie Lindsay, despite a lack of evidence. A white woman by the name of Bertie Lindsay wound up murdered. The 27-year-old Bertie Lindsay was born Bertie Smith in Lee County, Virginia. In 1916, she married Daniel P. Lindsay, a carpenter from Dandridge, Tennessee, and worked at the Standard Knitting Mill. Her bedroom assault and murder at 1612 8th Avenue in North Knoxville was witnessed by her younger cousin, Ora Smith. Well, the policeman who hated Mays 
was investigating the case and he said, I know exactly who that murderer was. So they went to Mays' house and rousted him out of bed and took him to the scene of the crime, put him under a dimly lit uh, street lamp, and the woman identified him uh, as, as the murderer. This, this woman had been sleeping in the bed with her cousin who was murdered, who said that it was a black man who committed the crime and identified Mays as the murderer. And he said, that couldn't be. I've never been in this neighborhood before. I don't know anybody here. Mays was taken to the Knox County Jail. And Mayor McMillan had gotten him out of trouble early on when he was about 17 years old. So people thought that McMillan would get him out of this. He's already expressing fears to the sheriff. Uh, it's not safe. They're going to try to lynch me. Mays, who is believed to be biracial, was rumored to be the illegitimate son of the mayor, John E. McMillan, a controversial figure, particularly because of his progressive views on race relations. That connection may have triggered a white mob that formed upon hearing that Mays, a black man, was accused of killing Mrs. Lindsay, a white woman. That mob later stormed and destroyed Knox County Jail in search of Mays. By that time, the sheriff had already snuck Mays out of the jail in an attempt to avoid a riot and lynching. When the mob couldn't find Mays, they decided they were going to kill every black person they saw in revenge. The crowd could not be quelled by the National Guard. Hearing of the trouble, the black community began to arm themselves, knowing the mob was coming. Many of them were veterans of World War I who had fought overseas and were treated much better as soldiers before they returned home to segregation. And they just were not going to stand for this anymore. When the white mob reached the black community, chaos ensued. Whites are basically amassed up here at Vine and Gay. Down at Vine and Central, in the black community, they have made siege preparations. They've shot out the street lights. There are reports that there was furniture, box crates, that sort of thing stacked in the streets to create barricades. And it becomes a standoff at that point. National Guard has their machine guns. They bring them in on the back of a truck. They set one up near Vine and Gay. They set them up on each side of the street in a crossfire. The guys manning them are not experienced machine gunners. A lot of them are mostly kids. Some of them are as young as 15, 16 years old. Most of them have not been in battle. There was one lieutenant who tried to make his way down to the corner of Vine and Central to scout out what was going on. He gets wounded by fire from the black side, staggers out into the street. Someone in the mob screams, let them have it. And at that point, one of the machine gunners panics and basically just starts spraying the street with bullets. He's caught in the crossfire and almost literally sawn in half. And it uh, takes several minutes for the officers to get the machine gun crew back under control. The main fighting uh, near Vine and Central lasts for several hours, at least up into the morning of the following day. There was fighting all along Central Avenue, which was essentially the border of the black community. People were fighting on the bridges, 
There are accounts of the black men trying to literally charge the machine gun nests, World War I over-the-top style, uh, and being mown down. Uh, at some point during the battle, it starts to rain. The general description from both sides was that Vine Avenue was a river of blood. The, re the real toll is probably never, ever, never going to be known. The official count was first five, then two. Uh, one casualty being Lieutenant Payne, the other being Joe Etter, a black Spanish-American veteran storekeeper who was uh, acknowledged as the, one of the leaders on the black side. How many more? There are all kinds of accounts. He's tried once, he's convicted. The judge gives the verdict his hearty approval and sentences Maurice Mays to death. By the second trial in 1921, the number of women who are willing to testify that they've been attacked in the same manner after Mays' arrest has increased to 15. And that includes one woman who says that the man stuck a gun in her face and said, lay still or I'll kill you like I did that Lindsay woman. Again, the judge refuses to allow that testimony. Again, he's convicted. Again. The defense appeals. This time, they're turned down. The case goes before the governor now. Governor Taylor, won't you please come out to the prison to see me? I am eager and very anxious to explain to you personally some valuable information that you should certainly know. Please, allow me to urgently beg for your presence. Humbly yours, Maurice Mays, Death Chamber. He appealed to the governor and everybody else. The newly formed Knoxville NAACP got involved in the case and they attempted to raise money for his defense, but none of that did any good. So Mays was eventually sent to the electric chair in March of 1922. And I, I always say that he really wasn't electrocuted for murdering the white woman because I never saw any evidence of that in any of the court transcripts that I read. But he went to the electric chair for dealing with white women, which was a real taboo in, in 1919. So he paid with his life for that indiscretion rather than being convicted of the murder for which he was accused. In part one of the Red Summer of 1919, we were joined by Cameron McWhorter, Wall Street Journal reporter and author of Red Summer, the summer of 1919 and the awakening of Black America. He explained some of the contributing factors that led to the Red Summer, as well as the facts and circumstances surrounding a number of other riots and massacres across the country. He also explained why the Red Summer in his opinion, was an awakening for Black people and Black institutions in America. Here is where we left off in that episode. To me, the, the interesting story of 1919, which I think carries through ultimately in Tulsa, is one of fighting back 
You know, they fought back African Americans, the NAACP, which I consider the heroes of 1919, fought back politically. They fought back in the courts. They began lobbying in Congress and holding hearings in Congress. They were pressing for federal lynching legislation. They started really actively fighting that way. There were lots of people arguing in the press and fighting back that way. And then there were people literally picking up rocks and bricks in the streets and fighting back and shooting back when they could get guns. So it was a period where I argue in the book that it was the beginning of, of the modern civil rights movement because the African-American community awakened as a political force and they weren't going to take this mistreatment anymore. It wasn't the end. It certainly wasn't the end of segregation or the end of white violence against African-Americans by any means, but it was a beginning of mass African-American response to that. And the assertion we're here, we're part of the United States, we deserve the same rights as everyone else in the United States, and we're not going anywhere. We're going to hear more from Mick Werder about how the name Red Summer came to be, as well as how institutions such as journalism and our justice system either fueled or did little to stop the incidents of horrific communal violence that terrorized so many Black communities in 1919, and in many cases, enabled it. You know, James Weldon Johnson, who I consider a great American hero that not enough people know about, was the man who coined the phrase Red Summer. Mm-hmm. But And he mentions it in a memoir in passing. And why but, did he, co- why, what was his reason so to call it? He said it was, it was so bloody, it was the Red Summer. And it was, it was so horrific, it was so scary to everybody that people just wanted to forget about it. People wanted to just move on. And, and, or it, if it didn't happen in your community, whoa, uh, yeah, because that would never happen where we live. That would never happen here. You know? And I'm sure, I guarantee you, if we could build a time machine and go back to 1919 in Tulsa, either in the Greenwood neighborhood or somewhere else, we could go into a coffee house or a bar and people would say, oh, God, you read about what happened in Chicago? Man, they've got problems. That would never happen here. I'm sure people said that because you always want to think that it's not where you are, that there's no, oh, we all get along here. You mentioned journalism, the role I, I too am a journalist. And yes, it's hard to come to terms with what was the sort of yellow journalism that existed back then. <laughs> In the case of Tulsa, the Tulsa Tribune and the world were obviously more like editorial publications as opposed to just straight news sources. And both are seen as having a huge role in the perception of the Tulsa race massacre. But the Tribune is actually considered by some experts to be one of the big catalysts that set off the massacre because of the way they described the events 
which you know we'll get into later in the podcast, but suffice to say, the language they used in their headlines, for example, to lynch a Negro tonight is an article clipping that is rumored to have been one of the catalysts of the riot. Is it, as a journalist, is it hard to come to terms with sort of where professionals in your industry once were in the role of journalism today? Well, no, I mean, it's shocking to come across some of the distortions that I did, but I also feel that at that time it wasn't surprising. These were the prejudices that you read about were certainly the the common prejudices of the day, and they were simply echoing them. It makes me more wonder, like, what prejudices are we echoing now (laughs) that we don't realize, right? That has me more So, for example, the riot that takes place in Washington, D.C., prior to that, the major newspapers in the city had been reporting on various assaults against women, who white women. Numerous times, the reports had accounts of a, quote, a black fiend was seen, blah, 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 blah. Although in many of these cases, no one had been arrested. So mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't know to this day who, who, what happened or what. But these reports were raising racial tensions in the city to the point where the NAACP actually had meetings with various newspapers saying, hey, look, please be careful with the language that you're using. Please choose your words carefully because this could cause some violence. When the violence does erupt, it erupts because the ground has been laid with these news accounts. But there's a rumor that a white woman was raped by two African-American men. The truth of the matter, and we don't know the exact truth, but the truth of the matter is that what actually happened was a white woman was walking down the street, and we don't know if she jostled these two men or they jostled her, but words were exchanged, but she had an umbrella and they sort of bumped her umbrella. That's what happened. Hmm. And that led to, did you hear that these guys raped a white woman? And they start rioting. So that led to four days of rioting in the, in the nation's capital. You know, it's and they, so hard to believe that. <laughs> so hard to believe that. Well, I mean, it really, in the absence of information, people riot all the time. You know, I've, I've been in some riots in my day and it's chaotic and people want something to motivate them. They want to believe and they don't look for facts. People stop looking for facts. And that's certainly what happened in many cases in 1919. It wasn't about the facts. It was about their impulse and acting on their fear. When they killed John Hartfield in Ellisville, Mississippi in 1919, he'd been accused of attacking a white woman. They pursued him for days. A posse pursued him for days, shot him and wounded him mortally. They brought in a doctor to keep him alive just so they could lynch him the next day. Oh my God. In newspapers all around the country, it was announced not that there was a lynching, that there's going to be a lynching. The event, uh, I think the estimates were up to 10,000 people showed up. It was a public event that had been heralded in the newspapers. You mentioned you have seen some riots in your day. You mentioned you've lived abroad. and You've mentioned you've lived all over places in the United States and everywhere you've gone, you've seen sort of this theme What has it taught you between studying the history of riots, especially in 1919, and then current events in the context of riots in the present day? What has it taught you about humanity? 
That's a, wow, that's a really broad question that I hope I can try to answer. I think it's taught me that leaders who act quickly and impartially to stop communal violence can do so. If they act quickly, you can stop it. And that if people think that we are, number one, it can't happen here, it could never happen here, or that was in the past, that can't happen now, they're wrong. It can happen. And it can happen again. And what it requires to make sure it doesn't happen again is leaders who are willing to impartially enforce the law and get get impartial troops into the area or police into the area and then listen to all sides and listen to people. And I think that is, if you don't do that, a riot will become, will spin out of control very, very, very quickly. But, but these were, you know, it would just take a flashpoint for this stuff to erupt, you know? So Tulsa, as you pointed out, there was a flashpoint, but it was a fabricated one, right? But it didn't matter. John Hartfield, who was who was lynched in front of ten thousand people, in which they, I mean, really horrific. You know, people they were selling his fingers. I mean, it was really horrific, horrific. But that incident, like, did he assault a, a woman? We don't know. We'll never know. We'll never know because there was never a trial. There wasn't even an unfair trial. There was never a trial. Mr. Brown, who was killed in Omaha. Did he do it? We're never going to know because there was never a trial. So it just takes a flashpoint of people hearing something and thinking it's true. You know, I mean, you talked about journalism. I mean, I'm much more concerned about misinformation these days, but people want to believe something's true. They embrace it as true and then they act on it and it may not be true. So that certainly was the case throughout 1919, all these riots. And once a riot's going, The only way to stop it is to send in a lot of soldiers. And even then, sometimes that doesn't stop it. Sometimes the soldiers join the side of the map. Yeah, the soldiers have to be impartial. Otherwise, you're just fueling the chaos. Right, right. I studied journalism in undergrad. I went to Columbia Journalism School. But I also double majored in Africana Studies in undergrad and never learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre, never learned about Black Wall Street. I learned about it, but I didn't know all of the details I know now. And I was horrified that what is considered one of the worst incidents of racial violence in uh, U.S. history is just virtually unknown among most people, including in curriculum that focuses on (laughs) Black studies, African-American studies. I mean, it's not just American history, it's Black history classes as well that just don't teach this. And I think recently Oklahoma decided that the Tulsa Race Massacre would indeed now be a part of the curriculum. That's after almost 100 years <laughs> later, right, right. right? But the other reason was because there was such a concerted effort to suppress the truth, to suppress the story. And what's fascinating to me is that most of these people would not talk about it, just would not talk about it. Some of them were threatened with their lives. Some of them were threatened with their jobs. But it was also too traumatizing for a lot of people to relive that experience. I definitely, yeah, I mean, I totally think you are correct there. For example, that incident in Georgia that I wrote about the church, there were people I met there who wouldn't talk about it. You know, it was 90 years later. Right. And they wouldn't talk about it. 
the center of that story is a man named Joe Ruffin who's accused, who they basically try to lynch. He has to flee to Augusta. He's put on trial for murder, even though he didn't, he wasn't involved. Or he was involved, but he wasn't a murderer. And he eventually is, after a lot of work, is, is acquitted and goes free. But he fled and no one really knows what happened to him, but his family had to scatter. And his great, great grandson ended up living nearby with his, with his mom when he was in the 1950s. And his mom told him as a little boy, like, you can never go near that church, but wouldn't explain a thing why. Mm-hmm. And later he grew up and went to Morehouse, became a, an attorney and worked for the NAACP and rose to become a, ju- a very prominent judge in the state of Georgia. And I met him and when I showed him what I had found about what happened at Carswell Grove, and he said, I've learned more in, from you than I've ever learned my whole life about what happened because mm-hmm. no one would talk about it. I think there's a real, there was a generation or multiple generations of African-Americans who just didn't talk about this stuff. Let me just make a pitch. I mean, I think the important thing here is that we have to have these discussions and that beyond this this is an important part of African-American history. Of course it is. But it's an integral part of American history. So we have to understand it. And if you don't understand race and the role that race has played in American history, you don't understand American history. It's that simple. And that goes back, of course, to 1619. And it weaves through the whole story. And that doesn't mean... America's a stained, horrible country. There's horrible things that have happened in every country in the world, but we have to understand it and we have to incorporate it into our understanding of ourselves. And we have to. Because it can happen again. It can happen again. Now that we've really explored and analyzed so much of what happened before it, in the next episode, we're going to really dive into the central focus of this podcast, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. Specifically, we're going to explore the factors and events that precipitated what is known as one of the worst incidents of racial violence in American history. Be sure to check out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages. Just search for Black Wall Street 1921. Make sure you also visit our website, www.blackwallstreet-1921.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter and keep up with all of our episodes. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. 